Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, we're in the last weeks of an exhibition called Campaigning for the Presidency, and uh, though probably everyone here is suffering from election fatigue, I still strongly advise that you go to see it if you haven't already. Uh, it will only be here through, through the elections, and since it focuses on the 1960s and those very bitterly contested elections, it will make you think twice before concluding that uh, nothing has ever been seen the likes of this year, although maybe nothing has ever been seen the likes of this year. Still, it was pretty bad. Uh, tonight's program, the 2016 Elections in America's Role in the World, is part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his generous support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to recognize and thank two trustees who are with us this evening, Joel Pickett and Rick Reese, and I'd like to thank both of you for all the tremendous work that you do on behalf of this splendid institution. Thanks so much, Joel and Rick. Now tonight I would like to uh, acknowledge especially the encouragement and support and um, intelligent advice as always of Harold Newman, who is responsible for us being able to bring in Bremer to, uh, to this auditorium this evening. So thank you so much, Harold for all you have done for this great institution. And Ruth as well. Thank you, both of you. Our program this evening will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. There will be a formal book signing following the program and copies of Ian Bremer's book will be available for sale in our museum store kiosk. We are really thrilled to welcome Ian Bremer to the New York Historical Society. Uh, I um, had the privilege of reading uh, late this afternoon an email that he sent to Harold Newman um, outlining his tra recent travels in Singapore. I hope you don't mind that Harold shared with me. Uh, and his um, account of sitting down with uh, the Prime Minister hours after the third debate um, of, uh, of the campaign and, um, and getting the views of the head of state um, right hot off the press, um, not to mention his other first-hand access to leaders um, in Asia and elsewhere, uh, really give you some insight into his remarkable capacity for analyzing policy decisions and their implications throughout the world. So we are very glad indeed for him to be with us this evening. Um, uh, I want to offer just a few biographical details that um, I have to offer with the caveat that they don't really begin to do justice to, uh, to his huge repertoire of accomplishments and publications. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, the leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He's also global research professor at New York University and a foreign affairs columnist and editor at large for Time magazine. He's a prolific author, uh, and his latest book, um, which he will sign following the program, is Superpower, Three Choices for America's Role in the World. We're also very pleased to welcome our moderator for this evening, Merit Janow, 
She's an internationally recognized expert in international trade and investment. She currently serves as dean of the faculty and a professor of practice in international economic law and international affairs at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. She's also an affiliated faculty at Columbia Law School. She's previously served a four-year term as one of seven members of the World Trade Organization's appellate body, the first female to serve on the appellate body. And she was a member of the first International Antitrust Advisory Committee of the US Department of Justice. As always, uh, before I turn over the stage to our guests this evening, please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please welcome our guests to the stage. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure for me to moderate this discussion uh, with Ian Bremer, who I greatly admire and whose books I have read. And, and it's a pleasure to see so many of you. Um, but not as clearly as I could if you lowered those lights just a little bit. Um, I thought we might start off um, uh, talking about, uh, if you will, the, the grand challenges, and then perhaps walk around the world a little bit. And you know, it's it's kind of uh, it's a really difficult time for I think for U.S. foreign policy in in many respects, whomever the president would be. And I thought we might start off by inviting you to to share your thoughts on the major challenges that will face the next president of the United States and what you think the choices are as we think about positioning the U.S. and engaging the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis those challenges. That's not an easy one to start off well, with. It's a and big, big open-ended Well, I mean, maybe just to hit a couple. I mean, you know, one, the one big one. I mean, if I were in the Obama administration, I'd have to be concerned that the signature policy of two terms, the pivot to Asia, is very close to being dead. It's very close to being a failure, which was very clear from my meeting with the Singaporean prime minister. Um, you know, the uh, United States, uh, it was interesting, it was that he, he, he said to me that China walks around with lollipops in their pockets, reminded me of, uh, of my old dentist. Um, and which means you may not like the other things he's offering, but you'll open wide when you know what's coming. And, and um, you know, the United States doesn't do that, and uh, so we're not writing big checks uh, in this part of the world. Um, and the signature policy, this massive trade deal, something, you know, you focus an awful lot on, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is likely not going to happen. And in the United States, we don't care that much, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of populism that's moving uh, both Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and, and most of Congress at this point. But our allies in Asia absolutely care about that. They care about it immensely. And you know, the Philippine, you saw that the Philippine president, Mr. Duterte, uh, went to China last week and a uh, big state visit. And he said that uh, the Philippines was separating from the US. And he was very clear about it. He said, look, the Chinese have a much bigger economic relationship with me. And they don't like that I'm seeing the US militarily on the side. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if, if, if you're a, a leader in Asia and you are questioning America's commitment to you, 
and you recognize that China is likely gonna be mopping up over the long term. So the question is not, do you capitulate, but when? Capitulating early makes a lot of sense because at least then you can get something for it. I mean, that, that's why the Brits decided to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank led by China first, even though we, their special relationship, told them not to. And, and I, I guess I, I focus on Asia, one, because I just got there, but also because this is emblematic of the problems that the United States has around the world. There are really two sets of problems, right? The one is that American allies everywhere look at the United States today, whether it's Saudi Arabia or whether it's the UK or France or Germany or Canada or Mexico or the Asian allies, and they all say, we are not sure how committed you are to us and therefore we should change our behavior. That's number one. And number two, our adversaries and frenemies see opportunities in the fact that the United States does not have this level of commitment. First and foremost, the Russians and the Chinese in different ways, um, but other countries as well. And with the transatlantic relationship, the most important alliance in the world since World War II, now at its weakest, with the Middle East, many states actively imploding, um, and with the Asians choosing another model, not all of them, not Japan, not South Korea, North Korea is a part of that, but also the longer relations that are more strategically oriented. But even there, I think there's a lot of concern from the South Korean and the Japanese government. You, you, you start to recognize that while the United States is not in decline, people still want to send their kids to our universities. They still want to invest in our real estate. They still want to be in the equities market. Lord knows that the future of the world economy is going to be driven by technology, most of which is in the United States. So, as an economy, I don't feel so bad about the U.S. I feel bad about inequality that's growing, but I don't feel so bad about the U.S. But American foreign policy influence is deteriorating dramatically. And I think that, final point, um, and I, I'm, 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 I'm abusing how long I'm answering this question because the first question was so big, but I promise I won't do that going forward. Um, I think that the, the ability of any U.S. president to actually recognize that our negotiating position is deteriorating internationally, and therefore we need to change our, um, our, our, our objectives, our engagement, we need to change what we offer, we need to think differently about how we try to get what we want. There is no one I know in the foreign policy establishment in Washington that is close to that frame of mind. Not close. I see way too many of them just expecting that other countries are going to do what we want because we're America, because we're right. That just don't cut it. And, uh, and it's going to cut it a lot less over time. That's the, that, that's the biggest challenge for the Clinton administration coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> okay, so there were a whole lot of different ideas there, but let's, let's uh, uh, you know, TPP is one issue, the pivot is another. Um, you know, the pivot, to my uh, way of thinking, is a bit of an unfortunate framing because it suggests we weren't there and now we're there, and then, you know, uh, I think that was not the intention uh, of, of the use of the term. Um, but the, the, the underlying question I think you're, you're um, raising with respect to Asia is how do we effectively engage China 
in a way that uh, enhances stability uh, in the region and um, uh, is aligned with U.S. interests. So do you have any suggestions about that for the new administration? Because I think, um, you, you know, I, I think that I would submit that um, tensions between Japan and China, you know, have calmed down a bit. And part of the reason for that is because uh, President Obama stated very unequivocally uh, the importance of the U.S.-Japan alliance, and it had consequences. And then even, you know, the Philippines, despite these recent very adverse remarks, and despite the fact that the International Criminal Court, you know, after, uh, excuse me, the International Court, after ruling uh, uh, on the litigation, which the Chinese totally dismissed as a, quote, junk piece of paper, um, uh, you know, we did see some quiet consultations commence uh, between China and the Philippines over those territorial issues. So. I think the management of U.S.-China relations is going to be enormously important for the next administration. And I would think that important for Singapore as well that we do this well. So I wonder if you have some thoughts on, on, on what kind of role we can play that would be constructive and, and what would you advise? Well, I mean, first of all, I agree with you completely on U.S.-Japan. The initial trip to the region was Biden, who went to Tokyo and didn't give them a lot of the commitment they wanted. They went to Xi Jinping and didn't make the tough statements that Obama later did. Uh, Biden and Xi Jinping know each other very well back when Xi Jinping was vice president himself, so they had very good meetings. Uh, but but it was recognized quickly that the Japanese were freaking out, and I think a series of trips by the U.S. culminating with Obama made them more comfortable. You're right, and and I do think that North Korea, which we haven't talked about yet, second question, um, is um, is a piece of this because the, the the Japanese and the South Koreans are worried mightily about North Korea's recent expansion of their uh, ballistic missile tests uh, as well as their nuclear weapons tests, um, and the United States just two weeks ago uh, threw some sanctions on a Chinese company, a small one, but that was doing business with North Korea on the ballistic missile program. And boy, that's going to get harder over time. So that's going to hurt the U.S.-China relationship because the Americans want to squeeze the Chinese, Chinese responsible for 90% of the North Korean economy. The Americans don't know what to do. And for us, everyone you talk to in the Defense Department will tell you that you know, North Korea's ability to launch a ballistic missile, intercontinental ballistic missile that hits the West Coast is a red line. Alaska apparently doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know why, but we've decided the West Coast is the issue. Uh, but most people believe in the next couple of years that this is going to be a problem. So I, I think your point on Japan and how this gets managed, at, we are in a better position with Japan and South Korea, not so much with Southeast Asia. With the Philippines, um, I, I think that the the Philippine government made very clear that, you know, they did not want trouble on the South China Sea. And they have said that they're going to negotiate that bilaterally with China. No multilateral. The United States, of course, wants multilateral. The Chinese want bilateral, just like 
on Russia relations. The United States wants multilateral with the Europeans to squeeze the Russians. Increasingly, the Europeans individually are saying, we wanna, we're the ones getting hurt with sanctions. We want to work individually with them. So the divide and conquer strategy when the United States doesn't feel as strong in this region. Clearly, what the US needs to do with China is try to maintain as united a front as possible. That's becoming increasingly impossible to do. Um, I think that Obama has done a reasonable job in managing the US-China part of the relationship so far. And, and I say that in part because we sort of respect the Chinese, you know, where we don't respect the Russians. Like, if we do something to Russia that makes no sense from the Russian perspective, we're like, ah, it's Russia. The way we handled Ukraine, the way we handled Syria, the way we keep saying Assad must go, the way we sent an ambassador to Moscow that met with the opposition on the first day, we never would have done that with China. Because we would know the Chinese would hit us back. But with the Russians, and I've had these conversations with members of the Obama cabinet, they're like, the Russians are kind of irrelevant. Now, this was a year ago. I think they'd say that less now. But if they see the relationship between the US-China like this, they see the US-the Russia relationship as this tiny thing. Um, so, uh, and, and they need to be disabused of that, right? Because the Russians are in decline as an economy, but they can hurt you. And Putin is showing us that they're willing to. Well, with China, you know, I think that there's, you know, we, we get the fact that China needs us and we need them. That there is a mutually assured economic destruction uh, between our economic interdependence that I think is very important. We, we have recognized some of, so I, I'm, I had a conversation, I remember, with the head of, of Cyber Command, I guess it was, um, talk in the US, uh, talking about, it's about a year ago, um, about uh, what the Chinese do to us on cyber, what we do to them. And it's very interesting because, of course, originally we had said, you guys engage in industrial espionage uh, and you're stealing things from American corporations, and we don't do that. We only focus on national security. But then, of course, Snowden happened, and it turned out that actually we also spy on organizations that are involved in trade. Well, because trade is part of national security, broadly defined, and it's not going to companies, it's going to the United States. Well, then we also found out that we're spying directly on, you know, um, Petrobras. That's a corporation. There are no terrorists there, right? It's like, well, because that's part of trade, and that's... So our point is that, well, we're not giving it to ExxonMobil. But the Chinese perspective is, look, you giving it to your trade reps so you can have a, a better, a more asymmetric leveraging point on trade, and us giving it to a state-owned enterprise, those things aren't so different. And when I brought that up with the head of Cyber Command, he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, this is a difficult argument. And, you know, I'm not sure where we're going to end up on this. So at least they're recognizing that there are two sides to the argument and that the Chinese are not illegitimate when they say they don't want to be responsible stakeholders because that definition from the US means that China has to act like they're rich even though they're poor and they have to provide leadership within the framework of US-led global institutions that they had no say in putting together that support free markets and liberal democracy that China has no interest in. In fact, that actively undermine themselves as a state. I think that Hillary gets that. And I think unlike second term Obama, where you had a lot of leaders that didn't know Asia at all. I mean, Kerry does not really know Asia. And he certainly doesn't know China. And he doesn't like focusing on things he doesn't know. Um, you know, 
Susan Rice doesn't have that background. Jack Lew had no international mandate. Uh, Tim Geithner really understood Japan and China. So you've lost all the Asia expertise. They had a great guy in the White House, Evan Medeiros, on China. I hired him. I'm sorry. Um, and that that was he's a good guy. Um, and and but I didn't I didn't poach him to be fair. Um, but but the um, you know I think that Hillary's team will have some very serious Asia hands and China expertise. Um, and I think that that's also valuable. The one good thing you can say about the Hillary administration on um, on foreign policy um, is that when when you go around to other countries, leaders know her, they know the people around her, they have experience with them, they feel fairly comfortable. And even China, China does not like Hillary. They think she's a hawk. They think she's aggressive. They didn't like her. They didn't want her until Trump ran. And when Trump got the nomination, Chinese leaders I've spoken to, including the foreign policy spokesperson for the president, has said, no, actually, Trump is too uncertain. And China, like the United States, as they get bigger, they're more status quoist. They are less revisionist. The Chinese, the Russians want to undermine the international system. They want to undermine America's position in it. China sees that the world is moving more towards them over time. They want stability in the Middle East. They don't like the Russians screwing around in Ukraine. They didn't vote for the Russians last week. For the first time, the Russians have had four Security Council resolutions on Syria. First three, the Chinese voted with the Russians. Last week, they abstained. They took that decision very carefully, I'm sure. But they're getting a little unnerved by how unstable stuff is in the world. So I, I think Hillary will have an easier time managing a U.S.-China relationship as long as North Korea doesn't go off the rails than they will the relations with many of their allies around the world. Well, thank you for that. I mean, Asia, you know, I spend a lot of my life in Asia, so I'm, I'm particularly interested in your views on that subject. Um, I would just say that uh, from my perspective, you know, the next president, uh, you know, will have to work on the areas of shared interests with China, may have to give China more space in international organizations, or they will go and create uh, their own. Uh, and we'll have some really serious points of friction, uh, whether it's uh, territorial or it is uh, cyber or it is other, that they will have to work through. And so finding that balance where you can speak to the positive and our shared interests, whether it's climate or it, you know, stepped up Chinese investment in the United States, uh, many other subjects that we'll have to work hard on those things. So it's very important that 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 if it is President Clinton, that you know, she'll have a team in place. So it sounds like you think she has a China team uh, or Asia-oriented team, and that's, um, that's encouraging. TPP is out there. I mean, Obama negotiated this. Uh, uh, it is a concluded agreement. Um, uh, Secretary Clinton indicated that she was not enthusiastic about it being passed during the lame duck session in December. And so a decision will have to be made, you know, what is to be done, or does it just language? And uh, do you have a, a bet on that subject? I certainly do, and I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about it. Um, no, I mean, I would have argued that TPP, I have argued, uh, I'm Charlie Rose, other places, I've said that uh, I think TPP is the single most important foreign policy legacy for Obama. I mean, Iran is up there, Cuba's small, but a big deal. There are some others. But TPP is the biggest because Asia is the most important region and America's allies really need it. And the alternative is much weaker 
uh, lower standard deals, but organized by China. And the Chinese are spending lots of money, right? They, they've got the cash to, to do it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's interesting. If you watch Hillary on TPP over the last six months, uh, it was a very lawyered phrase. She said every time, I do not support TPP in its present form. Every single time, in its present form, which is what she did until the last debate. Last debate, different language. Last debate, didn't support it before, don't support it now, won't support it afterwards, period. She's moved away. I think they know that they can't get it through Congress. I think they know that the space between the Democrats and Republicans is too great. They know they lost congressional leadership on the Republican side on this. Um, I, I think that uh, Obama waited too long to really push it. And so is it impossible? And the way she would have supported it would have been to say it's not in its present form if we pass legislation at the same time that provides support for the American manufacturing workers that otherwise would lose their jobs. Um, and Jake Sullivan has talked about that. Others have talked about that kind of off the record. Um, I, I, I would say at best, it's like one in four that it gets done at this point in the lame duck. And I think that's truly unfortunate. Yeah, no, I personally would agree with that. Not that it's a perfect agreement, uh, uh, but when the United States negotiates and concludes uh, uh, an agreement, uh, there are many positive features in it. It is certainly the case that the credibility of the United States is severely um, disadvantaged if we then don't push it forward after negotiating with 12 countries. I mean, I think that's where you were starting, that the, the, uh, you know, the reputation of the United States in the world is, is much reduced, and this contributes uh, to that. You're also, if I can take a slight detour, uh, raising the question about um, you know, every campaign uh, produces uh, positions by candidates that make it harder for them to govern once they're in office. I think we see this over and over again. Um, I was in uh, both Bush senior and Clinton administrations um, and, and, and experienced this firsthand. What do you see as the positions that, that candidate Clinton uh, will have to, will find challenging as President Clinton? Look, I mean, the, you've got all of the, you just mentioned critically that all of the commitments that the U.S. makes that allies see and that we don't, then don't follow through on. Now, I got to say, I mean, I read the Obama doctrine. I'm sure you did as well. The beautiful Atlantic piece done by Goldberg on Obama, probably the best piece on his worldview out there a few months ago. Um, and I, I felt for Obama in his agonizing on Syria, on the red line. He backed himself into the red line. First it was chemical weapons, then it was systematic use of chemical weapons, and then it was, well, only if the Brits support it, and then it's, well, only if Congress supports it, and then, well, Russia just gave us an out, you know? And, and, but his perspective, and of course, Kerry felt that his legs were completely cut out from under him, and Kerry's even been talking about that publicly in the last few weeks. I said, well, you know, I fought on Syria, but I lost that one. And he's saying that to American allies, which doesn't help the U.S. particularly, right? Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, I, I, I feel that, you know, Obama looked at this fully cognizant of the fact that him backing away was going to cause significant blowback from the foreign policy establishment, what his people call the blob, um, as well as from American allies. But here you are, Obama, 
in a no-win serious situation, you know that the stuff that the other side is arguing is not going to work. The bombs you're talking about are a couple of days' worth of bombing exercises that will damage the Syrian military infrastructure, but frankly will kill an awful lot of civilians and isn't going to lead to any win whatsoever. And you're being asked to do that. And Obama is not just a president, he's a human being. And I, 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 that's a tough one. But the Americans lose credibility. And now we have Hillary talking about how much tougher she would be on Syria. And she's talking about a no-fly zone, and she's talking about a safe area for refugees, and stuff like Obama. Obama's fundamental view on Syria is, number one, aligned with the American public, which is, this seems like a disaster. Let's try not to do that. And, and secondarily, this is a really slippery slope. Let's try not to go down it any farther or faster than we absolutely have to. And so Hillary is going to have a hard time presenting any solution for the United States that looks better but doesn't just create a morass. She has portrayed herself as considerably more hawkish on all of these Middle Eastern and war on terrorist issues, but the solutions that have been provided are largely military. I got to tell you, military solutions aren't going to fix the war on terror in the region. That's fairly obvious. You've got an immense number of angry, young, Ar largely Arab men um, who feel like the social contracts in their society no longer function for reasons we could talk about if you like. But I it's not clear to me that bombing them is going to improve their feeling of the social contract. Um, so that's a tough one. Russia, Hillary's single worst policy wasn't Libya, it was Russia. She got Russia really wrong, and the Obama administration got Russia really wrong. She did not understand that Medvedev was not in charge of that country, and therefore opening up to Medvedev was not really going to work with Mr. Putin. And they did not understand that Ukraine needed to still be a buffer zone between Russia and the West. Not because it doesn't deserve sovereignty, but because the Europeans don't care about it. Because the Germans were being begged by Ukraine to give them some cash, but the Germans were already squeezing Cyprus and Greece and Spain so hard, they weren't going to help corrupt non-EU member Ukraine. So Ukraine got screwed. And the Americans did not pay attention to this. So I think that you've got a whole bunch of things that Obama and Hillary have said that sound like hard, fast commitments, Assad must go, the Americans are going to, you know, really give hell to these terrorists and going to fix stuff and more com commit more to the allies. Um, you know, the, 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 the importance of all of these Asian allies, that, you know, Russia, that I think Hillary is going to have a damned hard time. I think she's incredibly competent. I think she's going to have a good team. But domestically, she's going to have to She's going to be forced to confront an incredibly polarized electorate, an incredibly polarized Congress. She's unlikely to have the House in her favor. She might, but it's unlikely. And so it's going to be hard for her internally. But internationally, the environment is going to be radically more challenging. So even if Hillary was an A president with an A team, which is highly unlikely, even if she were, um, you know, I, I just don't think you're, you have an environment that allows an A president to be an A president. And Obama has, I mean, with Obama, we've had virtually no scandals for eight years, right? We've had no sexual peccadilloes. We've had only the IRS corruption scandal. Aside from that, not very much. We've had a guy that's got this pretty damn smart and doesn't necessarily have the best team. He doesn't like doing politics, but he's learned a lot on the job. 
And my God, he's had a hard time domestically and internationally. The one thing he wanted to do, healthcare, he almost failed at, right? And he still couldn't do a lot of what he wanted to do. So I think uh, in reading your book, uh, if I remember correctly, you characterized uh, President Obama's foreign policy as one of ambivalence. And I think, uh, I, I don't think it was just the red line that was leading you to that conclusion. So could you just say a little bit more about what would be a non-ambivalent but doable American foreign policy in this complex world that you think uh, that the next president could in fact engage? Or is, because I think your, your book is po positing that there are choices for the United States to make. And you know, doing nothing is one choice, let the world go off and do its thing and we focus internally. Um, but it's also positing that there is an active foreign policy, a non-ambivalent foreign policy that could be an extension of U.S. values and perhaps be more effective in the world. And I wonder if you might speak more about that. So I do think the Americans, as the world's only superpower, and China's soon going to be the world's largest economy, they already have a more effective economic footprint with many other countries, even though they're smaller, because they have their state-owned enterprises and the government all shooting in the same direction. So they, they can do more. They can have more impact on countries. But, but from in terms of soft power, in terms of technology, in terms of resources, in terms of their military, they ain't close globally. So the U.S. is by far the world's only superpower. I, I don't believe that a country in that position has only one way to go. So uh, even though I come down on the side of a conclusion which says that we should probably lead more by example and make ourselves indispensable to other countries and want them to follow that way, then we should try to be indispensable America once again, which is Hillary's characterization. Even though I say that, because I think it's more doable in our present political environment, I do think that we could do indispensable more effectively if we wanted to. And one way to do that, you kind of brought it up yourself, Merritt. You said, you know, well, geez, we need to give these other countries more involvement in US-led organizations or they're gonna do their own thing. We're not doing that. So for example, the AIIB, we should have not only not told our allies not to join, we should have told them to join, we should have joined, we should have done it as a block, and we should be coordinating with them inside to have influence. And we should be getting the Chinese more involved in the IMF. Make them feel like it's an organization they have more say in. Have more collaboration with institutions that we created in Iran. That's clearly gonna be better than anything that anybody else comes up with, or, or the absence of such things. So that would be one thing. I hate to say it, we probably need to do more industrial policy. We already are seeing how much we need to coordinate with financial institutions on cyber, for example. Something the US government would not have done well or much of 10 years ago. We're now doing it a lot and well. The US government is going to have to you know, work more closely with US-based multinationals. I think developing, for example, an infrastructure investment bank in the US that looks like a sovereign wealth fund and that invests not only in the domestically but internationally and the U.S. can then follow up with and coordinate with big private sector folks. When, when China is the world's largest economy, I hate to say this, we don't have a global free market anymore. That should be obvious, right? We've all lived in a global free market. And we've lived in one that we believed once the Soviet Union collapsed was going to become more liberal and democratic. Well, you know what? China is reforming, but they're growing faster than reforming. 
and soon they will be the largest economy, they will still be state capitalist, they will still be authoritarian, we no longer have a global free market. So we're going to have to recognize that as the second largest economy, if we don't start changing our rule set a little bit, and if we don't start playing more in the economic space as opposed to primarily in the military space and work multilaterally with friends, then we're going to lose a lot. So I think there are lots of things we can do, but they are really challenging. We're not good at them. We, don't, we have a State Department. So Hillary, when she was Secretary of State, she had a speech, I think it was the first October that she was in office, on economic statecraft. I read the speech. I thought it was brilliant. And it talked about how the Americans needed to respond to Chinese state capitalism. But here was the problem. Hillary wanted to put that in the State Department. Now, she was running the State Department, but State Department is organized by regions. They've got diplomats that don't really know the private sector because we do not have a Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. We have a Department of Commerce, which is fairly weak. We have a U.S. Trade Representative, which is quite strong but quite small. And energy is separate. That makes no sense. So we, we actually need to have a setup that allows us to project economic power more effectively than Japan does. And we don't. And you know what? I've been in with the head of the Joint Chiefs who has asked me when we do the weaponization of finance, when we think about how we're going to use the U.S. dollar and banks as a club to get other countries to do what we want, like where in the U.S. government should that be done? Should that be me? Should that be defense? Should that be USTR? Who should be doing it? They don't have an answer. So I, I think that that needs to be addressed by the next administration. We're going to have to develop some of these tools more effectively. Well, that's very interesting. I, you know, I, 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 I can't possibly agree with the idea of consolidating agencies because they each have their institutional history. And, and when you try and, and consolidate, I, I just don't know any examples that have worked well. But, but when it has uh, created more unified policy, it's been driven out of the White House. And the White House has taken you know, more control over issues. And there are always pluses and minuses you know when that when that happens. So there are a lot of a lot of uh, uh, challenges, I think, with the idea of of a kind of unification of policy along along those lines. But um, uh, the tools, uh, you, you know, I, I I used to be deputy assistant USTR for Japan and China, and I remember asking the USTR at the time, why are these two countries, you know, in one unit? And she said, well, they're the two non-market economies. It was a joke at the time in 1989. But, you know, there's never been a global free market. There have always been distortions introduced by countries of, of different sorts. And right now, we are actually having our, some of our most difficult challenges between the U.S. and the EU, of course. So I wonder if you might speak to those issues, because it feels like we are very far apart on many fundamental questions between the United States and the EU over the same sorts of things you've alluded to. I agree completely. S secrecy, privacy, you know, the digital economy, many issues that are now the, the fundamentals to international commerce are sources, taxation, um, competition, you know, the economic engine that drives our relationship is more and more fraught between the U.S. and, and Europe. So uh, to get into that answer, you know, I thought it was really interesting that you said that it's really hard 
to consolidate agencies. No question. But actually, this was one of the reasons that when you had initially asked me, well, what can the United States do to project its power better internationally? I said, well, my, my initial conclusion is not that we do that. My initial conclusion is that we actually lead better by example because we are the largest economy and we can convince the Chinese and other countries that we are the ultimate too big to fail. Precisely because the kinds of things that China and other economies do better than us, it is unlikely that we are going to develop those tools well. Like, you know, you're right. I mean, you, you look at it from the inside and you say, well, you couldn't put commerce and USTR together. Those guys are completely apples and grapefruit. And you say, well, if the White House tries to get involved, but that's going to cause big problems too. And there's a political bun fight internally. Yeah. I, anyone that looks at the US government in Washington understands that dramatic change in short period of time with how they function probably isn't in the cards. So that ultimately leads me to believe we probably aren't going to be able to beat the Chinese at their game. And so instead, we have to force them to reckon with the fact that ultimately it's the U.S. economy, U.S. technology, U.S. schools, U.S. immigration, that this is a place they have to be. Because after the 2008 financial crisis, for a year, I was petrified because the Chinese were suddenly thinking that we were no longer fit for purpose. They didn't want to bet on us anymore. Now, thank God. They don't feel that way anymore. But you, you, you get a couple more years, a couple more administrations, like the foreign policy failures that we're presently seeing, get how challenging the environment is, the Chinese might change their tune. So I do think we have to start deciding on that. Now, your question on Europe, I think, is really apropos, because you know, so much of what American foreign policy now does well is kind of unilateral, right? People say Obama's not an interventionist. I think that's ridiculous, right? I mean, Obama, drone use, cyber use, weaponization of finance, use of SWIFT, right? Use of banking sanctions, all of these things. We're more than happy to go unilateral. And you look at how the Europeans responded to Snowden, how they responded to the, what was it, the $14 billion fine against Bank Paribas. We're like, hey, you know, we know you didn't break any, you know, French laws, but actually we decided that you can't do business with some of the countries doing business with it. If you want to bank in the U.S., you're going to have to pay a $14 billion fine. Standard chartered, all this stuff. And they all decided, standard chartered after some ill-placed op-eds that, you know, we can stand up to the Americans, that actually they probably can't. But the problem is, right, is that these sanctions work much more effectively against our allies than they work against China. Again, example. Um, U.S. policy on Russia, which I consider to be a completely failed policy. Um, uh, Europeans have been effectively sanctioned against Russia. So a lot of Europeans have signed on board. We pressured them really hard. The Germans were also on with it. The Brits were at the time. Now the Brits aren't part of that conversation. It makes it harder. A lot of other Europeans didn't like it because they're doing much more business with Russia than the Americans are, so they're taking it on the chin. I remember John McCain, about a year ago, was pillaring Obama for not being tough enough against Ukraine, and that we needed to really hit these guys hard. And I said, oh, I said, so um, what you're basically saying is since the Chinese are the ones that are doing much more business with Russia as a consequence of our sanctions, because the Europeans can't, so the Chinese are, are, are actually, you know, they're, they're more than happy to pick up the, 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 the cheap stuff and, and squeeze the Russians hard. We should sanction the Chinese if they don't listen to our 
sanctions, right? And he said, oh, well, we need to talk about that. And I said, you mean talk about it in terms of the fact that our policy won't work or talk about it in some other way? And he didn't answer that question. Um, that's a problem. I mean, we, we don't have, we, we see very clearly that we can get our allies to do what we want and we have a much harder time with our adversaries, so we kind of just give up on that. We've said nothing about the fact that the Chinese are not in any way paying attention to our Russia sanctions. I, that should tell you that this is not a good policy. Um, it's not like the Russians are paying attention, right? I mean, they're only, they're only agitating more for again, reasons we can talk about. So I think that this is, uh, I think you're absolutely right that the greater we use these unilateral tools, the more our closest allies are gonna feel themselves that they need better hedging mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I was hoping you were gonna say that there was a happier path forward with the European Union uh, than, than we have at present, but I didn't hear you say that. Let me ask you um, one more question before we, we open it up, um, because I think, um, I, I'm sure we have many questions in the audience, um, and that's about Iran. How should we be thinking about where we are in this Iran nuclear uh, agreement? Uh, I hear um, growing concern in Washington uh, that uh, not about non-compliance, but about dissatisfaction in Iran for where the agreement stands, that the, that the sanctions uh, are so multi-layered that the anticipated benefits have not proven themselves and this is having an adverse response at home that might cause this deal uh, considerable difficulties. And I wonder if you have any insight on the Iran agreement and what we should be concerned about or not. I liked the deal. Um, it wasn't perfect. But I think the reason that people um, in the media have been agitated about it is because it was presented as a much bigger deal than it actually is. Um, the deal was about the Iranians delaying their nuclear programs by 10 to 15 years. In return, they would produce more oil and they would have unfrozen significant amounts of, US, of Iranian assets that the Americans had frozen. Those three things happened. It did not make the U.S. take broad sanctions off the Iranians linked with their support for Hezbollah, which the U.S. considers a terrorist organization. Many of the Europeans do not. Um, it, it did not, I mean, look, I, I, it, it didn't make our countries like each other. I was with the Saudis uh, government recently, and they said, why are you pivoting? They love pivot, too, as a term. Why are you pivoting uh, towards Iran? I said, we're not pivoting towards Iran. We're pivoting away from you, right? I mean, we don't. One does not lead to the other necessarily, just like both of you. Um, and and I, I, I think that, so I find it, number one, it's clear to me that, um, that destroying OPEC is in America's at least short-term interest. I mean, you don't necessarily want all these countries to implode. Forcing them to become, to develop more sustainable economies on balance is a good thing. They should have done it a long time ago. Clearly, it's a massive tax break for American uh, working and middle classes. That's a positive. That's and and fra the, the 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 fact that some frackers are getting hurt on balance is more limited from my perspective than that. OPEC was geopolitically problematic for the U.S. It is vastly less so today. You see that with the statements from Iraq today that well they're in war, so they're not going to pay any attention. The Russians are willing to freeze production because they're at the record levels and they can't increase it. So I mean, if the Saudis want to take oil off, God love them. 
Um, that, that's a positive thing. The Iranians delaying for 10 to 15 years, I, I was stunned. 10 years ago, the nuclear program was probably, from Iran, probably the most existential threat that they had. It's not anymore, it's cyber. They're vastly more dangerous on cyber to the Saudis and globally than they are in terms of the present status of their nuclear program. Now, I mean, the fact that we have at no point decided to change our views because we have a hard time with how technology develops and we have been talking about the nuclear time the whole time, but I didn't see anyone at any point during these negotiations say, hey, isn't cyber a bigger problem from the Iranians? Like, that wasn't it. It was all about, are we gonna stop them from getting nukes? Pakistan has nukes. That's not good. North Korea has nukes. That's really bad, right? At the end of the day, I mean, the Iranians, I think, wanted to have to get beyond the, the, the potential for um, breakout capacity so that they couldn't be deterred against, basically. I, I think this Iran deal is a small deal. It is diplomatically significant for the moderates in Iran and for Kerry himself and the Obama administration as a win. It will not improve relations between the two countries greatly. And the Iranians have many reasons why they want to stay at arm's length from the US, not least of which because the mullahs are concerned that if they open up too much, they might end up uh, having a green, another green revolution that they couldn't control. Right? I guess why the North Koreans don't want US investment. If the US started investing in North Korea, the country would fall apart. So the Iranians do understand that they need to maintain a plausible American enemy through all of this. And I think that that is working reasonably. So it's a good deal, but it's a marginal deal. Well, thank you. I, I, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but I wish we had another hour before we opened it up. But I'm, I'm mindful of the time. So we do have, I think, two sets of microphones. And we're going to invite people to come up and, and ask questions for a few moments. Um, and I think I'm seeing someone standing there. So uh, if you'd like to get us started. Well, first of all, thank you for a wonderful discussion. Um, my question is, China's aspirations to become that second great world power. And you've implied that that's going to have a very hefty price tag attached to it. Do they have now or will they have in the future that kind of financial power to reach their aspirations? Um, I, I think when, no, I don't think so. No, no time soon. Um, you know, chi China's, I think what China really wants is to be treated, they want to, they want to have, they want to be seen as having a true, a true seat at the, at the table. They understand that the United States is first among equals. They're prepared to be second among equals. But it has to be second among equals. They want to be respected in their terms. And I think it's precisely the fact that the US has moved in that direction that has made the Chinese more comfortable with the US in talking about Taiwan, in talking about cyber. I think that actually the relations between the US and China have become more normalized and more stable, even though as Merritt rightly said, we've got some significant issues that we seriously disagree with them on. And then we have others, like on climate, where we've actually made some progress, frankly. You know, we kind of made each other look good. So we're capable of doing that. But over the long term, China still, we haven't talked about just how much transformation is required in China to make their economy work. Because they're, they're trying, for 35 years, they've had this fixed income state investment-based economy. It works really well, but now they're moving to a consumer-led economy. They've never done that before. It's going to be hard. They're going to be massively internally focused, and their foreign policy will be overwhelmingly oriented towards shoring up everything they need to ensure the economy still works. So I think that for the foreseeable future, the next 10 years plus, 
China's foreign policy is going to get much more significant. Their footprint will get bigger, but it's really going to focus pretty narrowly on what kind of commercial ties do they need. So they're opening a military base in Djibouti. Why are they doing that? Because they need to ensure that they can protect their supply chain. Makes a lot of sense. But are the, are the Chinese suddenly going to be a major player in Syria going forward? Not at all. Right? So different sorts of things. I think that you have to recognize that China supplanting the United States as the big global economic superpower is much narrower than what American power is all about. And one quick anecdote, I was, for my sins, this is off the record, please, uh, had, had lunch uh, with Ivanka and Jared a couple weeks ago. Um, they, they wanted to talk foreign policy, and um, we were in the same place. Uh, and, uh, and it was very interesting. First of all, they were both very intelligent, and I hadn't really spent time with them before. But what, what I found intriguing was the sense that, look, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. We've got the military, we've got technology, we've got energy resources, we have food. We're not just about the economy, and yet when we have negotiations with other countries, like with the Europeans, the Japanese, and the rest, we don't use all of that stuff. And so their view is we should be able to get much better deals if we use all of our leverage. I, I, that's, not, that's not on its face stupid, right? The, the problem is that they see alliances like they see business and like Donald sees marriage as purely, as purely transactional, right? And that's a problem. Because, right, a, a relationship, an alliance is not about, okay, you ordered this, I ordered this, let's split the check. An alliance is meant to be more strategic and sticky on the basis of shared values and creating shared institutions. And they really don't see value in that. And I think coming purely from the private sector side and having no experience in Washington has given them a lack of appreciation for the architecture, for the standards, right? That's, that's really my sense, and you know, you, you need to get into it. Mean, again, I, don't, I think he's gonna get destroyed in the elections, clearly I've been saying that, but I mean, you, you need to understand kind of what that worldview is all about, because we are seeing more of it in other parts of the world, like in Europe, which I think is interesting. I think we have to go over here, but I think what we didn't talk about was, I think, um, you know, nationalism around the world uh, and in the United States, and you know, what that produces in terms of scope for cooperation or unilateral conduct. And you are seeing a lot of rising nationalism in China these days, and I think part of it has been influenced by the American electoral process. That's another subject. But over here, may I invite you, sir? Sure, hi. There's always been a knee-jerk reaction against trade agreements from NAFTA onwards even before some of it very understandable. What I don't understand is why people like you don't propose expanded safety net legislation before you propose trade agreements, not try to use it as a limited SOP afterwards. It could be job relocation as well as training, an expanded GI Bill, many other things. But nobody talks about it as naturally coming before trade proposals. Nobody in America with power, right? Although, I mean, certainly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and what they reflect in the Democratic Party clearly showed a desire to put that on the agenda in a big way. Now, you can say, well, it's too late. Um, but the fact is that, you know, rarely do politicians respond to things that they're not utterly forced to respond to. 
I mean, it's hard enough to get anything done anyway. And I mean, apathy is a massive political force in the United States. Most people don't care much. I mean, we had the Occupy Wall Street movement after 2008 financial crisis. Six months later, no one was asking about it because it went away and we didn't care. Um, and, you know, special interests in the United States are overwhelmingly important for congressmen to actually get in office, and so they get the play. Now, if you look at a country like Denmark or Sweden or Singapore, I am seeing governments right now that recognize that the social safety net is no longer functioning for significant pieces of their society and that labor is changing and that they need to, as a consequence, engage in different types of redistributive policies. Now, that can be a universal basic income. I don't like that, by the way. And I don't like it for reasons that may surprise you. I've seen what happens in a country like Saudi Arabia when people have basically a universal basic income. When it's just a handout, the government tends to become much more authoritarian because they feel like, well, we're paying you, so you don't have a right to say anything. I much prefer a Denmark-type solution where you recognize that labor is becoming much more flexible, like Airbnb and Uber. And so you have individual people that aren't working permanently with corporations. You're going to need to redistribute much more to them. Um, and you're going to need benefits that accrue to them individually, not through their corporation. But they'll work certain times where there'll be surge demand for them. Other times, they're going to be fallow. Or Sweden going to a 30-hour um, uh, a, a week uh, work week for some cities is an experiment right now. I, I would rather see something incremental I also think it's more doable. And I'd also rather, in a country as complex as the United States, where Washington is so messed up, I would rather actually see it moving through cities and, and through states. Because mm-hmm. I suspect that'll be more effective. But you know, sure, your general point is well but taken. It's not happening. I know. Well, I, I, of course it's not. Again, because I don't think there's urgency. I mean, there's lots of things that aren't happening. We're not fixing Syria after five and a half years of war and 12 million displaced. Why? Because it's not hurting us very much. I mean, no, no one can, you can look at the South, you can look at South Chicago, you can look at Ferguson, and you can see places that have life expectancy that are lower than Rwanda. But the fact is that most decision makers don't have to look at that every day. And Facebook and Twitter and social media make it much easier for us to only hear people that are like-minded to us. And so it's, it's really easy to tune out you know, sort of the broader structural issues that are creeping of greater importance within developed economies. Nobody can look at the United States today and say there's true urgency to fix these problems. This isn't Tunisia, right? We can say we'd like to. We can say we're bothered by it. But we can't pretend it's urgent, right? Not yet. And that, and that is, of course, the true sadness in responding to your question. Let me say, uh, because we must be conscious of time, if I can have your indulgence, we'll just hear the next two questions and let you have a final comment. When you talk about the influence of nationalism on the international scene, you're really talking about emotion, because emotion is a very important part of nationalism. How can you address these complex problems which you have presented to us in so many different aspects and ways, when the whole essence of the political campaign is based on emotion. Okay, thank you, yeah, sir, behind you, and then we'll let you give It seems to me comment. from my recollection of high school American history that the Smalley Hoot Tariff was one of the significant uh, tariffs to deepen, extend the Great Depression. 
what would be the implications of Trump's policy to in- impose a 30, 35% tariff on goods coming into the United States? Okay, Ian, you have uh, everything from nationalism to tariffs uh, to, to speak to. What are the consequences? Well, I mean, what the last one's mean? easier. It's about the same as the implication of a wall that Mexico pays for. I mean, <laughs> it's not going to happen, um, so I don't think we need to worry about it. It's inconceivable that Trump as president could put a 30% tariff across the board. Uh, even, you know, Paul Krugman called for one, too. It's, I, I love it when Krugman and Trump agree on stuff. Um, Krugman was just as unrealistic uh, in, in calling for it. Um, I, 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 I think that um, the, 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 seriously, it would, it would be disastrous, of course, but again, the, the, import, the, the, <laughs> the impact of, of, the lo- of lobbies in the United States who are truly vested that would prevent that from happening completely is, is overwhelming. And that would be both within a Trump administration and outside. So there's, there, there are many, many levels of inconceivability that, uh, that come from the answer to that question. Um, but that kind of leads to your question, sir, which is, you know, there is a lot of anger. There is a lot of fear. I'm not sure which is more important in this election. I suspect fear is still more important than anger, actually. Fear of the unknown. And that's not going to go away. No, I think so. No, but so anger's going to grow, a, right? Yeah. I mean, you know what depresses me is so we're going to have a Hillary administration, and it's going to be competent, and it's going to have all the people that we've known about. And she's going to talk about how the United States needs to be committed to our allies and all. But I mean, do we really believe that in the next four years we're actually going to address uh, the the growing dissatisfaction of large numbers? of people in America that feel like the entire establishment is useless for them. I'm not just talking about Republican and Democratic leaders. I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about corporate CEOs. I'm talking about bankers. I'm talking about public intellectuals. Can you believe public intellectuals? They believe we're not useful for them. That's horrible. But that is, that is, that's what they think. And um, we're clearly not going to address that. Um, and, and so as a consequence, it's going to get more challenging. Um, I. I do believe that um, the the extraordinary rise of efficiency from technology, while it will displace a lot of American workers, it'll displace a lot more workers in the emerging markets, um, will create cash that will allow us to respond to these. But but here's the challenge: we don't have. If we don't respond, our country is not going to fall apart. If we don't respond, we're just going to have greater walls, both virtual and real, between haves and have-nots. And that's already been happening, and it hasn't bothered us very much. You know, Israel-Palestine works. They don't need Palestinian labor. They've walled them off. The Palestinians have gotten really angry. Right? Well, I think we'll have to stop here. We're standing between uh, a bigger conversation and book sales, so with that... I think we'd better let our host speak. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Ian Bremmer and Merit Janow, thank you for a very special evening. And certainly, if you both want to continue the conversation for another hour, we'll we'll invite you back. (laughs) What do you think?
So I just want to remind you, um, Ian Bremmer will be signing books. My name is Dale Gregory. I'm vice president for public programs. This is just what we want to do all the time. We thank you so much for coming. And have a great night and stay for the book signing. Thank you again.